wonderful, wonderful. I love it when we dedicate some young people because it reminds us that what we're doing here is actually about family and the generations to come. I believe with all my heart, it, it, said, it leans to this in Genesis 18 that the reason the Lord chose Abraham is says because he knew he would tell his children. Yeah, that's what he says. Chosen this man, he's going to tell his children about me. It's kind of a big deal, yeah? Yeah, kind of a big deal. And who knows, raising your children in church versus raising your children in the truth or in the kingdom can be different things. Hello? Is it just me here today? All right. All right. Well, we're going to jump into, could you go in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, please? Um, towards the end of the year, last year, I felt the Lord put it on my heart to go through messages that are, in a sense, life messages, both for me but also for the church, messages that have been preached before, have been heard before, but they form a little bit of a part of our DNA as free life, and also they've just life messages for me. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of them. There's, obviously, you want to bring the whole counsel of God, but then there's messages that God puts in you that's like they're a part of you. Who knows what I'm talking about? You can feel it. Like when my dad, personally, when my dad preaches on faith, you feel like it's just, I don't know, there's just something different that comes across. And so, since the beginning of the year, we've actually been doing that. You may not have known that, the series on forgiveness, even what I preached on Easter, uh, the series on, what was the other series, The Kingdom Coming, all that is things that we've heard many times, hide thyself, show thyself out of Elijah, I called it um, uh, when God makes men. These are all messages that are, we've, been, we've had before, we've heard before, but God just put it in my heart to do that. And... Um, and so we wanna, I want to speak about the prodigal son this morning. And it's a message that many people have heard. It is actually said by scholars that it is the most well-known short story of all literature. And Billy Graham used to speak a lot about it as well. So many of you have heard messages on this. But I'm going to ask you to just tune your ear in again, tune your spirit in again. It's not just about the interesting things that we may look at or that we may hear. Because the Bible never calls this story the prodigal son. It actually, Jesus calls it the story of a, a father with two sons. The focus in the actual story is on the father. We've made the focus on the one son. So, let's go to Luke chapter 15. And we're going to read in a little while. Let me speak to you a little bit first. Jesus, as we know came to deal with the issue of sin, yeah? And we all know that. And their entire focus in the Old Testament was on sin. But Jesus came and he said, I've come to reveal the Father. If you want to see what the Father is like, look at me. Why did he say that? Why did he do that? Because their understanding of who God was, God the Father, was yet not revealed. And their whole perspective of God was through the law. Through the law of Moses, through the law of the Old Testament. And so they were every day, in a sense, focused on what? Sin. Every day, focused on sin. Wake up with what not to do. Wake up with what I must not do, what I must not say, what I must not act like, what I must not behave like. And that was their whole focus. And all the different ways that God was revealed to the earth and revealed to His people, El Shaddai, El Elyon, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Rapha, all the different names, all the way He was revealed are absolutely wonderful and amazing and true and his attributes still. But he was never revealed as a father. 
It says in the Old Testament that he calls Israel his son, which is why the Jews, they, they struggled here in the Scripture to understand that God has a son. It, it wasn't just blinded minds from the enemy. It was that. But they thought Israel was God's son. And here comes the Son of God. And he said, I've come to reveal the Father. Why? Because he's about to pay the penalty. He's about to pay the, pay the price. He's about to redeem mankind, remove the barrier of sin that's in the way, and give access to their Father. And so he's, he's saying, you can't, you can't see him like you do now. Because even in the last covenant, at the outset of the last covenant with Moses, uh, God actually called them all. Like if he called them and he said, come all and speak to me. Come all speak to me at the mountain. I want to speak to you all. I he called them. And they actually said, no, we're afraid. Go read it. He says, no, we're afraid. You, you go, Moses. You speak to him, and, and then you come back and tell us. And the system of mediation was put in place. God always has a desire to speak to his people. Or from the book of Genesis to Revelation, we see God communicating with people. God's speaking, God speaking to people. And so Jesus comes along as the Son. And he says, I've come to reveal the Father. My life is actually to reveal the Father. There was a book written a number of years ago by a professor, two professors in Baylor University. I don't have this here. It's just coming up in my heart now. I think it's called America's uh, Four Views of God. And they did, I think it was 10,000 churches or 1,000 churches, interviews about what is God like. And they said they predominantly came out with four different views of God, domineering. The one was like a, you know, like a Santa, like Santa just giving, there's no discipline, all the four views of God. But what they presented was the fact that, that America doesn't have a view of God that looks anything like Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why do you ask, look at the Father? I'm here, look at me, look what I do, look how I'm like, look at my heart, look at my words, look at me, you've seen him. And it's a, it's a very good book. I think it's called America's Four Gods because they had a view of the Father that wasn't full. Because Jesus desires, he did it then, he's doing it still, to take orphans who think like slaves and reshape and reform them into sons who think like kings. That's in the Bible. I will make you a kingdom of priests, it says in the book of Revelation, talking about saints. It actually is, the phrase there is actually, I will make you kings and priests. He's come to give us his mind, his heart, to demonstrate his will on the earth. And so he, who was the first orphan? We'll be going away from the structure over there. It's dangerous. Lucifer. And so God puts a son on the earth, not in a sense his son as in Christ, but he puts Adam on the earth. And along comes an orphan to poison the heart of a son. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And he says, did God really say? Did God really say? What does he do? This, this in a sense, orphan, this orphan heart, this orphan spirit creates this, a son of God, a son of God on the earth, which was Adam, not God's son, you understand. We're all sons and daughters. He creates this mistrust and it causes rebellion. If you look at the story of the prodigal son, what did the first son do? Rebellion, walked away. Then that same orphan, comes to the second, the last Adam. When the Son of God comes on the earth, the Bible calls him last Adam because he came to restore what Adam, in a sense, caused. And that same orphan comes to him. He says, if you are the Son, perform. Show me, prove it. Do this and do this. Show by what you can do that you are who you say you are. 
What happens in the second son in the story? Performance. I've worked for you all my life. I've, and Jesus obviously didn't. But it's to put an orphanness. There's an orphanhood in Western churches. Doesn't matter. You can call it whether it's different types of churches, denominations. It's if we worship like this, if we do this, if we do this, if we praise long enough, if we do this, then maybe daddy will come visit. Maybe daddy will show up. Maybe we'll feel his presence. Maybe it's like a father coming to visit and then, and then he leaves again. But the Bible says he's here. Hello? There's 400,000 plus minus churches in the United States at the moment. And yet the moral decline of the nation is still steady. So something is wrong. Now, I know things are going to get worse. The Bible teaches that. But there's the church on the earth to reveal who God is. Through His Word, but also through demonstration, through the power of the Spirit, through the love of God, through service. You guys alive? Yeah. And we need sons and daughters of God who know Him. You can't reveal someone you don't know. You can know about but it doesn't mean you know him. So, that's what we're going to look at today. All right, let me just find where I am. 1 John 3 says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Has this, therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Showing again. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Separation from the world, you can call it sanctification. You can call it separation from the world. You can call it purity. You can call it different things. It doesn't come from waking up with what I must not do. They learned that throughout the whole Old Testament. It comes from waking up knowing your Father, and knowing His love for you. And because you know that, and because there's a love relationship, the world does not know you because it does not know Him. There's something that happens in the heart. We are not interested. There's nothing there that is influenced. I'm not interested in it. I'm not trying to be the best at that. I'm, I want to know Him. That shifts everything, a place of sonship. So, let's go to, let's go to the Scripture. Go to Luke 15, please. We're going to read it in different parts. Let's go to verse 1. We're going to read most of, the, most of the chapter, but it says here in verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, him being Christ, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke a parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, and go after the one which was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friend and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine persons who need no repentance. Okay, then he goes, verse 8, to the parable of the lost coin. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, um, the light of the lamp sweeps the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. 
Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he goes into the parable of the lost son, or actually the parable of a father with two sons, which you'll read in a bit. So what's the actual context? Why does we, have, we know the story of the prodigal son, but what is the actual context? Well, it shows us. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained. That's the context. The religious leaders complained. And they said what? This man receives sinners and eats with them. Because in this Middle Eastern culture, if you sat down and ate with someone, it was actually showing full acceptance of you. And they're saying, how can you sit down and eat with these people? And so they complained. And it says, so Jesus told them a parable. And he told them three. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Three parables. Because salvation, I... I, you, you don't have to see it this way. It doesn't really matter, but I believe it's the bigger context. Salvation happens through the Son, Jesus the shepherd, the lost sheep, by the Spirit. The Bible says the Spirit is the one who searches. He's called the hound of heaven. He searches like that woman. By the Spirit, restored to the Father. So he's painting a much bigger picture, but he includes all three in the process of the redemption of mankind. But that's the context because... Religious people were very upset. How can he do this? Now, we have to understand why were they upset. They weren't bad people, but they lived in a shame and honor society. We don't live in a shame and honor society. And I don't know if we can fully grasp or understand a shame and honor society falls and rises on shame versus honor. Everything is like that. So we're going to look at some culture today. We're going to get into some culture. We're going to get into the way I believe they heard it what they would have heard, what it would have meant for them, so we can see what Jesus is actually trying to say. Jesus is speaking, it says to scribes and Pharisees, you had to be men to be a scribe or a Pharisee, and a tax collector. So he's surrounded by Jewish men, and he's about to give a parable about what God is like as a father. He's surrounded by Jewish fathers, saturated in that culture, saturated in the Old Testament law, saturated in religious activity. But they didn't know the Lord. So it was a bit of a shock, some of the things that Jesus said to them, and I believe it caused quite a stir. So, firstly, parable of the lost coin. What did he say? A woman who has ten silver coins, but she lost one. What did it mean for them? Well, do you know that a, w a woman who was going to be married would wear ten silver coins? on a headdress. It'll, some images will come up behind me. They'll, they would wear 10 silver coins. And if they lost one of those coins, it was a really a big deal. That was, their, 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 was them saying, I'm taken, I'm betrothed, or now I'm married. I belong to someone. It gave them their prominent position in society. It gave them their status. It actually gave them their protection. And now one's lost. And so she searched frantically because it was like she was searching for her life and the very house she's searching in because of these ten coins. And Jesus is also saying, hey, I've come for a bride, but these ten coins. And so she searches like she does. She searches with great fervency. And then Jesus relates the coin to a person. Now, ask you a question. Did the value of the coin change 
before it was found? Did the value of the coin change when it was found? No. If it was a quarter, it wasn't a quarter. It was much more important than that. If I throw a quarter over there and then a year later someone finds it, it's not suddenly a dollar. That's pretty obvious, yeah? He relates this to a person being saved. Those coins had an image on it. The image didn't change when it was found. If believers think that we are of more value to God when we're saved than before, we're wrong. We have to see how God sees people, how He loves people. He's imprinted, whether they're saved or not, He's imprinted His image into them, and that image doesn't change when they get saved. They are changed, but they're made in His image. They're made in His image. And you see how the Holy Spirit, well, I believe representing, searches to put conviction, to call, to demonstrate. He, the value for one person, for one, He's put His image in them. And the, the, the value doesn't change. You don't become suddenly more valuable, but you do get restored to purpose. That coin outside of the bride's adornment has no purpose. God is trying to speak to us as His people, saying, it's not, yes, we want people saved, but it's also people are longing for purpose. And their purpose is to adorn the bride of Christ. And in that, they will find purpose they've never discovered before. And I will give them a new heart, because I, their value is set. It's set. There's so many people, especially in the church world or religionity, that's my new word, that are trying so hard to be valuable. If we understand that our value is set, it's not about being valuable, it's about being available. There's a big difference, friends. It's about I can avail myself to God because of the value that He determined I have at my creation with His image in me that has nothing to do with me, that has nothing to do with how I am. My value is set. My purpose will change. My responsibility level will change. That's why I love people who love the lost and are reaching out to the broken and the hurting because they understand this. The value for the one person. The value God has for that person is the same as He has for Billy Graham. Different purpose, different anointing, different gifting. Yes, obedience is always very important for the believer. But I have discovered that if we can show people their value to God, obedience comes from a heart of love instead of a heart of fear. Do you know that you're valuable? That valuable? Everyone here? Do you actually believe that? You're valuable. You have His image in you. You're made in His image. And that was bent and twisted through sin. We understand that. And so God brings, He makes you new. But your value, the coin didn't change when it was found. But it was restored to its purpose in the bride of Christ, in God's people. And yet, you can find a believer, let's say he understands that he's, God, he has a, just a revelation. Man, God loves. And so he's, Lord, I'm available to you. Use me. It's not based on how good I am. Use me, Lord. But then if they tie their identity or their value to what God does or does not do with them, or what God does or doesn't do through them, and they tie their value and their identity to that, they actually 
to some degree, they make themselves unavailable to God. Why? Because when a child is screaming and you give them what they want because they're screaming, you shouldn't. Just, hear, just side note, don't do that. But when they're screaming and rah, and so to get what they want and you give them what they want, what have you just done? You're training them, this is what I need you to do in order to get something from me. And then the next time, I told you not to scream last time, but if they scream loud enough. This is why when we tie value, our value, our identity as a son of God, as a daughter of God, as a child of God, or in the church, or in the house, or in business, or in prosperity, or in poverty, we tie our value and identity to what God does or doesn't through doesn't, does or doesn't do through us, because we have, Lord, we're available, use me. But then we tie it to that. There are some things a good father will not do, because the Lord will not reinforce an unhealthy identity. I often ask myself this question, what prayers, Lord, am I praying that you can't answer, because you're such a good father that you can't reinforce an unhealthy identity? Hello, because he's good, he's a good dad, and sometimes I'm saying, Lord, 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 but he sees, oh, but it's from a different heart, I I so badly want to answer, but I don't want to train you that that's what you need to do to receive from me. Are we alive? Am I making sense to you? That's good. So that's the context. These people are upset, and he speaks about a lost coin, lost sheep. Now we come to the story of the parable of a father, a loving father with two sons. Can we read it? Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood And not many days after, the youngest son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all there, sorry, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Hmm. So, what's happening here? Now, this to us is a few sentences, but to these Jewish fathers that are surrounded, Jesus is surrounded by, that are upset because he's sitting and showing acceptance and value to sinners, and he starts to speak to them, and the first thing he says is a request. So as I said, we're going to look into culture a little bit this morning because we need to see this. The request was culturally to bring shame upon that family in a major, major, major way. There's a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Bailey. He's somewhat considered an authority on cultural studies in the Middle East from Jesus' day even until current. And he says this, To my knowledge, in all of the Middle Eastern literature, aside from this parable, from ancient times to present, there is no case of any son, older or younger, asking for his inheritance from a father who is still in good health. There's not another single example that he can find. 
Because we have to understand, it's not like today. He wasn't requesting money. It was land, livestock, buildings that have been passed down from generation to generation. And as the youngest son, he's, he gets a third, and the older son gets two-thirds, according to the law of Moses. And that's why it says he divided to them his livelihood. It was the father's livelihood. He divided to them, the sons, because the son's saying, I want it now. We've all heard it was the son basically wishing his father dead. In the Mishnah and the Talmud, which is what they used to form the Jewish, the oral tradition and the Jewish law, it says this. If one assign, and this is actually how they live by this law, if one assign in writing his estate to his son to become his after his death, like a will, the father cannot sell it since it is conveyed to the son. And the son cannot sell it because it is still under the father's control, in other words, while he's alive. So they understand this. They were living with this law. If you've assigned this as an inheritance to your son, you're actually not allowed to sell it because technically it's your son's. But the son is also not allowed to sell it because the father is alive and it hasn't become yours yet. It lock, locks the land down. It locks the possession down. And this is the law. That's from the Mishnah and the Talmud. That's the law they lived with. So when these Jewish fathers hear something that we just read quickly, they were absolutely horrified. Just the request, just the request brought extreme shame upon the family. Just the request. Because these guys would have grown up with King Ahab and Naboth. You can go look at it in 1 Kings 21. King Ahab, a weak, bad king under Jezebel, goes and asks this man Naboth for one of his vineyards. And he says, the Lord forbid me that I should give to you the land that I received by an inheritance from my fathers. And they kill him for it. So they were raised with like, in this regard, Naboth the hero. He gave his life, but he didn't want to give up his land. That's the way to, you stand firm. This is ours. This is our families. So to ask that in this culture, whoa, big deal. Really, really big deal. Now, this piece of land no longer belongs to you. Because what else did he do? He didn't just ask for it. He did something unthinkable, against the law, unscriptural, and against the culture. He took the land, the livestock, the buildings, everything that he had, and he went and sold them and traded them for money, and then left that land and went to a Gentile land. Now, this land, this inheritance, will no longer belong to that father or that father's family line forever. We have to see what Jesus is saying here. Forever, that will never again be theirs. And it's been passed down. It's like... Your great-grandfather starts an amazing business, and it's successful. And he passes it to your grandfather, and it grows. And he passes it to your father, and it grows. And they pass it to you, and you're ready. And you sell it for a vacation and some spending money, and it's over. That's what he's saying. That's what he's actually saying. So these Jewish men... These Israelites, these Hebrews surrounding Christ, at the request, would have been absolutely insulted, disgusted, upset. What's Jesus doing? Remember the context. He's surrounded by people that he's trying to tell them their value to the Father. And now he's trying to say, let me show you what my Father's like. He's not like you. 
I believe as that sentence came out of their mouth, out of his mouth, they would have been like, oh, let, how's this dad going to get him for such insolence, such disrespect? So what, is it, it's, what does it say? It says, so he divided to them his livelihood. To us, one sentence. To them, it would have caused an absolute eruption. Because no father there would have done that. And there's no father in history, according to Kenneth Bailey, that did do that. Jesus said, I've come to reveal the Father. He's trying to shift their perception, and we'll see why. Some people say, well, that's not wise. Why would he do that? We see it through the natural. Well, let's look what happens. Why did the Father do this? (laughs) Well, what did he want from his son? Obedience? It's helpful. What did he want? Respect? What did he want? He wanted a heart, love relationship with his boy. And he knew there was only one way to do that. <laughs> That's what he wanted. The Lord's saying, my father wants your heart. He wants your heart. So they would have been upset. Let me say this, earthly fathers, I myself frequently struggle with just the fact, can we just be real and honest? I often feel like I'm failing as a dad. Not like this, oh, I'm so horrible. Just, it's, it's difficult. If you care, it's difficult. Or if, ladies don't see all the men are doing this. You feel like, oh, I shouted at him when I shouldn't have. I. It's difficult. But let me say, earthly fathers that have more concern about what their son's actions do to their reputation will miss the child's heart. That's what the society was. It's not about what happens to your reputation. That'll create an orphan. Fathering is concerned with the formation of the heart, not what reflects upon them as parents. This story is very precious to me because I've been both sons. I was the rebellious son, and I became a super overly focused religious do-well-in-the-church-world son, and God had to set me free from both. The second one was actually harder, which we'll talk about next week. My father came to me when I was 18, just about to turn 18, figured out some of the stuff I was doing, which I won't get into now. It wasn't good. really wasn't good. And he gave me three choices. He said, I want you to know that my love for you is far more than what I do. So I'll leave the ministry. If that's the issue, I'll leave the ministry and I will, I will focus my time and affection on you. He said, or we can stay in the ministry, but I will you know, give you time. What do you need? And we can adjust our life. Or you can leave. You can't continue to do what you're doing under this roof. You're always welcome at my table always welcome to come, always welcome to my table, but I can't allow you to do what you're doing and celebrate that by endorsing this roof over you. Now as an adult, it's 18. He said, but I will also give everything up if that's what you need. Now, I left because I, I was an idiot. So <laughs> I left. But some parents... I knew in my heart 
how much he loved me. And he couldn't have brought the boundary if it wasn't on a foundation of love. I knew he loved me. And you know, eventually we, as it is, they leave with all your ambitions and, and you run home with your tail between your legs, which is what happened. But I knew I was always welcome at his table. Let me also say this to, to parents. Your, your child's behavior at a certain age is not a reflection on your parenting. I understand, we all make mistakes. My wife taught me this. Look at how God's children behave. And he's a perfect father. I look at some of them, I'm like, whoa. I look at me sometimes, whoa. And yet he's a perfect father. It's not just this glaring reflection. They make choices. Hello. So the request has come, and then there's this response. Give me what's mine. Wasn't even his yet. And his father does it, because he's trying to build a bridge that his son can come back over. Then there's the result. What's the result? Well, we know the result. He wasted his possessions with prodigal living in a foreign land. Now, the word prodigal, we think it means this abased lifestyle. That actually means reckless or extravagantly wasteful. That's what it means. But Jesus' son has grown up in a good home, but he's tired of it. I'm tired of my father's wisdom. I'm tired of my father's lessons. I'm tired of my mother's reminders. I'm tired of my mother trying to tell me what to do. Don't you know I'm a man? I'm like 12, you know, like I'm, I'm tired of that. I want my own space. Leave me alone. That's, he's raised up in a good home. So he leaves. That's the result. And he wastes everything that he was given with prodigal living because rebellion always wastes what someone else paid for. Always. The father knew this would happen. It's what happens in a person's thinking or in their lifestyle, the outward display of the lifestyle when they don't know who they are or whose they are or why they are. And that's what begins to happen. But what happened? Well, it says he spent all and there arose a severe famine in the land. Famine there is not like us. Oh, just, you know, be careful how much water you, you, you use. No, famine there, they die. So there's a severe famine in the land. So what does he do? Well, he, he, just, he, he discovers what it's like to live in a land or in an area, a Gentile at that time, not connected to God. How do I live in this world with now I'm not in connection with eternal resource like I always have been in my father's house. Eternal resource connection is cut off. Now there's a famine. So what does he do? He joins himself to the citizen. That word there is actually glued. It was something you could do. You could like join yourself to a foreigner and come under their authority, which was against the law, against the culture. You're not allowed to do this. So what does the guy do? Well, what do you do when there's, you know, hangers on? Do I... Is if I just experienced this, they're like, come for dinner, and then they're, they're like, never leave. You know, four months later, they're like, that's a great dinner. You know, it's just some, they, they, this, they ha how do you, what do you do to get rid of someone like that, just culturally? He says, well, he's a Jewish boy, so send him to feed an unclean animal. Sends him into the pigs. He's not going to last long. And it says, and no one gave him anything. Why? Because if you keep feeding a stray cat, it's going to come around. So they're trying to give him this message, please go away, please go away. We enjoyed you when you had all the money, but now it's gone, so goodbye. And the world is way crueler 
than the lessons that you thought your father had and your mother had that were cruel. The Proverbs, adorn your neck with the lessons from your mother, my son. But I don't feel like a... Now, I know we're mostly adults here, but it's the same with us and the Lord. The Lord says, hey, go do this. Oh. It's like, oh, I don't want you to find yourself in living in the world unconnected to eternal resource. There's some hard lessons there. So what happens? Well, then there's the return. Let's go read it. Luke 17. But when he came to himself, interesting identity. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father, actually, we'll do that later. Let's read that 18 and 19. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, personally, I don't think there was a change of heart. I think there was a desperate heart and thinking, rehearsing, how can I better my situation? What's at the center of his focus? Still himself. So I'm going to start to rehearse. What do I need to say? Maybe it's just me that's done this. What do I need to say when you lay in your bed at night? What do I need to say to get what I want in that deal, in that relationship, in that situation? What do I need to say? Man, I need to make it sound good. It's just me. You guys are amazing. <laughs> so that's what's happening, I believe. And he starts to rehearse. Why? Because he knows he's coming home to a ceremony, which you will also find in the Jewish Mishnah and Talmud, a ceremony called Kesasa. The Kesasa ceremony. And what that was, it was brutal. In order to invoke the ceremony, I'll tell you what it was. You had to either leave your people, like leave them, like he did, or join yourself to a Gentile in a foreign land, which he did, or sell one of the part of your inherited estate, which he did. You just had to do one. He did them all. He really did it well. And then, you would, if you ever try to come home, they would do a ceremony. And this ceremony, which I'll tell you, but they cut, they, you were cut off from your family, from your community, from worship, from your faith, from money, cut off. And the men at the city gates, they would see this boy coming. And they would take a big clay pot and they would throw it off the, throw it off the city gates. And it would smash all over the ground. And they would shout at him, you are cut off. And the reason they would do that, if you've ever seen ceramic shatter, you can't put it back together. You can't. That was the point. The relationship you have with us is broken. You and your family, broken. Father and son, broken. So he's coming home to this. He's coming home to this ceremony. He knows that. Now the other funny thing about the ceremony is the father wasn't allowed to be there. Father had to be at home. The mother was allowed to come and beg for mercy. The siblings were allowed to come and beg for mercy. But the father had to be at home and the community and the family would report to the father and he would then make a decision. And that's what he's coming home to. So let's see how this father restores his son. 
And he arose and came to his father, verse 20. But he was still a great way, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I love it. Seth Dahl said it last week. The father basically doesn't listen to him, ignores him. And the father says to his servants, like he's talking to his dad, he's like, hold on. And he starts to direct his servants, talks to his servants. He says, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. It says there, please remember the, please, the situation. He's surrounded by Jewish fathers, saturated. They are already angry. They're angry. They're upset. This never happens. What you're saying is upsetting. It's offensive to them. Their whole world is like saying no, no. Why? Because Jesus is sitting with sinners and tax collectors and he's trying to reveal the Father. So he comes to his father, as we know, and he had rehearsed it. Now, I believe that's when his heart changed. Not when he rehearsed it there, but when he starts to speak to his father and he sees the lavish grace of his father, his heart changed. Why? Because in this covenant, Jesus said, I'm bringing a kingdom that is not of this world. I'm revealing the father that you can't see. And in this covenant, it is the goodness of God that will lead your heart to repentance. In this covenant, it is the grace of God that teaches you to say no to sin, not waking up every morning thinking about what I mustn't do. That's going to leave. I've come to give you a new heart. And when you wake up in the morning, I want you to know your father and know his voice, and know his love and affection for you, and know what we've done for you, because that grace will equip you and change you more than trying not to do something. And his heart begins to change. Now let's look at the father's actions. First thing, it says he saw him. Well, the father shouldn't have been there. Father shouldn't have been there. So already they were like, oh, that's, oh, don't do that. He saw him. He's going to the city gates every day and looking. Maybe today my boy will come home. Maybe today. And he looks. And then he sees, as we know, it says he saw him a long way off. So he's looking. And he knows the gate of his son's walk. He says, that's my son. Covered in mud, unclean animals. He says, that's my, that's my boy. ask you a question. Do you think the Lord sees you like that? Or when he sees what you do or what you've done, the things that cause guilt, shame, what is his perception? Do you see God like Jesus is revealing him or does this offend you? He's not a father like any father we've ever met. Then it says his father ran. Now, in order to run, can I be graphic a little bit? Just firstly, to run, of course, was shameful according to the Jewish tradition Talmud. Jewish men over 40 didn't run. Like, it never, ever happened. It, it was to bring shame on yourself. They would not do it. They were not allowed to expose their legs. 
And in order to run, you had to, you know, the term gird up your loins, you know, they had like, I don't want to call it a dress, that'll be offensive, but I don't know what else to call it. They had that thing on, so they would gird up their loins, you know, underneath and around and the whole thing and tie it and now we can like go to war and now I can fight. But if you're running in an emergency, they would just pick it up and they would run. So if you were behind them, you get an interesting view because it flaps up and down. It goes up and down. The thing is going. Yeah. Hello. So that's what happened. He sees his son and he begins to run. Shouldn't run. That brings shame. He exposes his legs. That brings shame. He was shamed at the request his son made. He was shamed at the sale his son made. He was shamed at the departure his son made. He was now shamed again, twice. Why? Because he knows the ceremony that the men are getting this righteous. We're going to show this kid this rebellion. We're going to show him. So he puts himself in between the shame and his son. And he takes it again because of his heart for his boy. No Jewish father there would have ever done that. Friends of leaders would do this. <laughs> if leaders would do this, parents, business leaders, that culture, oh, that's a kingdom culture. Yes, there'll be consequences. Yes, there'll be discipline. But, that, but in that moment, choose to stand with the one that is going to make your reputation bad because you want to reveal to them what he's like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we all know Hebrews, it says, he endured the cross despising the shame. Why? He's showing us this is what the Father's like. This is what he does. So at this point, there's a rip-roaring mad crowd probably. So Jesus continues, it makes it worse. He says, and then he fell on his neck and kissed him. You know that phrase there in the Greek is the same phrase that when it says the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2? Same phrase. Showing what? That the Holy Spirit upon a person. Jesus actually called it. He said, behold, I send upon you the promise of my Father. That the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when you get filled with the Spirit, when you, it's the embrace of a father. That's actually what it is. Jesus called, this is the promise of my father. It was in this context that he said in John 14, I will send you another helper. I will not leave you as orphans. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Sonship, the Bible says. I will put in you my own spirit, the Spirit of a son, so that you stop thinking like an orphan. It's the brace of God, and we've made it about anointings and styles and power, and that's all good, but you lose the heart of it. The heart of it is a father and a son, a father and his child. He wants to love you. And then he put the best robe on him. I'm going to be another five minutes or so. He put the best robe, not just any robe, the best robe. This was the festive robe of honor. Some people think it would have been the dad's robe, but it was a festive robe of honor. He gives his son honor in replace for shame. 
He doesn't deserve honor. You don't deserve honor. You deserve hell. I deserve hell. Yet we get him. Because he took shame on our behalf. I know we know this. But does it impact the heart in how we relate to him and to others? So he put the best robe, of, robe on him. Now, in those days, a robe meant identity. You would see a warrior's robe, a priestly robe, a, 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 a musician's had robe. They all had robes, and you could see from a long way off, oh, that's what they do. That's who they are. He puts a family robe of honor. You have a family robe of honor. If you're a Christian, you wear a robe of righteousness. It's the family robe. You did not deserve it, but you have it. It's a family robe. Then he does something even crazier. He gives him a signet ring. What is that? What did the son do? He wasted the business. He wasted, he would have had to walk home with his father past all the land and all the animals that will never be theirs again with the robe on. And he has to walk past and he gives him a ring. What is a ring? It's authority. What kind of authority? Transactional authority. This may offend some of you. It was like giving him a credit card. Because he would go into the marketplace and take the family ring, the signet ring, and press it into the seal on the parchment, press it into the wax, and they would run the parchment up to the family and the servants would dish out the finances. He could go to the market and use his name. When you get saved, you are given a ring. You are given authority to do transaction, spiritual transaction. It's not based on what you do and on how you behave. It's based on what he did. And you get a ring. Now you grow in it. You learn in it. Mike Bickle said there's only two types of people in the kingdom. There's lovers and there's workers. And lovers will always get more work done than more workers. Always. Always. Because they love. Hardship is different when you love someone. Hardship is different when you love something. I heard a gentleman say, why do these people go fishing? And they stay freezing cold. They're standing up to here. The water's running. They've got water in their boots. The, the hook in the back of their head. They're trying to fly. It's awful. And the wind, they, they love it. It's the stupidest thing. They, they love it. They're cold and wet and miserable. And, but they're so, because the hardship is nothing according to what they love. The Lord knows this. Our Father knows this. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But it changes when you love Him and when you love people. And I'll bring it to a close. He put sandals on Him. That's purpose. The shoes of the readiness prepared for the gospel. He gives them sandals and they celebrate with a fatted calf. We desire here in Free Life Church to build a culture, it's on the wall I think, of people who know God. Because you can't reveal someone you don't know. Church is nice, church is great, but the kingdom is different. And to build a culture of people that know Him, to be able to stand with someone when they've done something, maybe even something publicly, yes, they need help, yes, they maybe need some parameters, 
but to be able to stand with them when people are throwing pots and throwing accusations instead of washing your hands and saying, I'm going to distance myself like every politician would. A father goes, oh, that's the best time to go stand with my boy. Can we do that here as a church? Can we do that here as people who say, yeah, you know, maybe something will happen and stories or whatever. What, I'm not thinking of anything specific. But it's that heart. This is what God's like. This is what God's like. Oh, and it'll cost you. This is what God's like. Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and sinners. He's just told them, man, you're valuable. You're so valuable. My wife, we were asked to help someone a number of years back. And I said to her, if we help this person, it's really going to come back on us. Like, they're going to be grateful, but then they're going to turn and they're going to come at us. And she smiled and said, yeah, but we, we should do it. doesn't matter. That, that heart. That heart knows him. Hello? I have to close. Let me just read you this. Like that coin, what is your value to God? I want you to ask yourself this question real quick. What is your value to God? Do you think it wavers? Or is it set? Be honest with yourself. Ask yourself, what is your value to Him? Does it waver according to what you do? Or is it set in stone? You'll know by how you pray when you're by yourself. You'll know by how you react when you go through difficult times. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. Do we think that God's involved in that because we've been a bad son or bad, or do we think we can run to Him in the, in the storm? Which way do you run? Next week, we're going to get into the religious son. This part, this part is prevalent here in Loudoun County. There's a heroin epidemic. There's things happening to our kids, and I'm not trying to be political. There's all sorts of things happening, and we need fathers to rise and to stand. Not just earthly, but with a father's heart. You know how many young people I get when we're praying for people and with tears they tell me, I, you know, I, I don't have a family or I, my, my, we're, you know, they live somewhere else. They, they're looking for places where they can just go sit on the couch, just kind of be around a family even if it's not theirs. And there's many fathers in this house that would welcome that. They just don't know it. To build relationships across the aisle, to build relationships across the generational gap, to open homes, to open hearts, to give wisdom when it's needed, to put your arm around someone when everyone else is throwing pots, you're going to say, hey, it's okay. Come to my house. Because a community, a genuine community, with an understanding of the Father's heart is so different to a Christian community that is in title and all the right words, 
but it's not real. Who knows what I'm talking about? Great, you're 10. That's great. No, I'm just kidding. God is a father, and his love for you is beyond what we can understand or grasp. Jesus goes into the, what I call the performance issue, which is a big issue in this area. We'll get to that next week. Obedience is always important for the believer. Always important for the believer. But the Lord knows if he can put love in the heart and he can reveal how his father feels about you, a lover will always do more than a worker because the motivation is different. Imagine the two sons after the story, working in the yard, working in the fields. The one, the older son, still has something to prove. That's what drives him. The younger son has nothing left to prove. Oh, he loves his father. Can we stand? Can we stand? I wonder if just for a moment, if you're a father and you hear this message and you're going, Lord, make me a father like that. Let me just tell you, I'm saying the same thing. I'm always saying that. I would encourage you, it's not about knowing how to be a better father. It's about knowing your father and he will help you. He will change you. He really will. But I wonder if we could take a moment. Every one of us have, and I understand this is about how God sees us, but every one of us also have people in our family who are this person, this prodigal, that crazy uncle, that whatever. We all have family that we think, man, I'm not sure if God can get that one. They're just a little bit too crazy. I wonder if we could pray for them real quick. Can we do that? I'm going to ask you to, you don't, you don't have to close your eyes. You can if you want it. I do. It helps me focus. But I wonder if you could, by name, under, under your breath, by name, just pray for them. Just pray for them. You may have prayed for them a thousand times. Just begin to pray for them. Just begin to ask God to call them back. Begin to ask God for them to come to themselves. Let him come to himself. Let him come. Let him realize who you've said he is. Let him realize his value. Let him realize that he has your image inside of him. Let him realize how you see him. Yes, there need, needs to be change. But right now, just pray for his heart. Pray for her heart. Pray for them to be restored, to be reconciled. Just pray for them, whoever they are. Father, we lift these names up to you. Lord, I thank you for your great love, for your great love. You love like no one we've ever seen or understood. And we ask for these. Lord, that you would call them back, that you would put them in our path, that you would bring opportunity. We pray redemption for them and a loving, loving embrace of your spirit, of your heart, of a father's heart to bring change in the heart. Bring them home, we ask. Bring them into the kingdom and bring them home in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bless you all. And over to Joshua. Told you he was anointed. Okay, we've got the ministry team that's going to be over here ready to pray for anyone that would like prayer for anything at all. Otherwise, go enjoy your May 1st afternoon, and we'll see you guys on Mother's Day. Thank you.
Well, good morning, Free Life Church, and happy Sunday. We're so glad you've joined us today. We'd love to connect with you. Connection cards are a great way to let us know if you're new to us or any needs or comments you may have. To submit a card, simply scan the QR code on the back of the seat or visit the Connect page on our website. And if you are a first-time visitor, please stop by the Connection Corner in the lobby to receive your welcome back. We look forward to meeting you. The Bible Reading Marathon is happening this week from April 30th to May 5th. Join other believers and friends as we read through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelations, in 88 hours, ending on the National Day of Prayer. For more information, follow the QR code or go to our events page. Registration is open for our Discovery course on Saturday, May 21st. Whether you're looking to get to know us better or interested in becoming a member, this course is where you begin. Brunch and childcare will be provided, so please register online today. If you have completed Discovery and made the decision to join Free Life, we invite you and your family to be prayed over during the service on May 29th as an official welcome to the family. Please register online if you'd like to be included in this new member prayer. Are you unsure if water baptism is right for you? Do you have questions about what baptism is? Then come join us at our baptism interest meeting on May 29th, where the leadership will be answering your questions in preparation for our summer baptisms. Sign up today to let us know you're coming. Ahora tenemos traducción al español o al portugués en vivo para nuestros servicios de domingo. Simplemente descarga la aplicación Interactio en tu teléfono inteligente e ingresa el código del evento FLC. No te olvides de traer tus audífonos para escuchar la traducción en tiempo real. Spanish or Portuguese translation is now available for our Sunday services. Just download the app Interactio on your smartphone. Enter the event code FLC and don't forget to bring your earplugs so you can listen for real-time translation. Stay informed of upcoming events and important announcements by signing up for text updates in our newsletter. Simply text FREE LIFE to 41400 to sign up. And remember, to learn about all our upcoming events, please see the events page on our website. Thanks for joining us today.